0: Every so often you'll go through a period in your life, you will see yourself as a failure because you don't see yourself operating in the way that you dreamed that you would. The pressure in your life right now has a purpose. It's not
1: crushing you. It's pushing what's on the inside of you out.
0: It shows you who you are it's how you find out what's on the inside of you you will not be challenged in your convenience you will be challenged in your chaos opportunity comes in chaos a chance to stand up a chance to get it right a chance to make a new turn What I need you to do is I need you to find a reason to keep going. And if you can find a reason to keep going, I know you're strong enough to do it because you're human. And every human has what it takes to get past whatever they're going through. If they decide to push through it, push through it. Tragedy and trials come to everybody. Only the strong survive. Listen to me very closely. Y'all running from obstacles when in fact it's the obstacle that's gonna take you to the next level. Y'all running from pain. Y'all running from challenges. You telling me how difficult your life is. Do you understand it is the difficulty that's gonna prepare you and take you to that next level? You are going to come up against some moments in your life. I've been there. Somebody told you it was over. Somebody told you that just go home and die. Somebody sent you home. Somebody told you you'll never be a doctor. They sent you home. You failed. They sent you home. Law school. They sent you home. Some wife. She told you, I said, I don't want to be married to you. Some husband. I don't want to be married to you. And he left. Never give up. You don't give up on me. You don't quit on me. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You man up. You woman up. You get your life back. You get your family back. I need mental toughness. And some of you are not successful because every single time you run up against a trial, every time you run up against a tribulation, you stop and you cut off beast mode. And what I'm here to tell you is if you tell that thing, I'm here just like you here. And I promise you, I will not leave without that goal. I will not leave this opportunity until I'm successful. I am not phenomenally skilled, but phenomenally real. I will not give up. I will not surrender, I will not quit Life is going to beat you upside your head And I'm going to tell you this, I don't care who you are and what profession you're in Before you go up, life will strip you to the core. But if you leap, you will be broke And I'm not here because I'm the best I'm here because they tried to break me and they couldn't I invested too much to quit I made too many sacrifices to give up And your problem is you're giving up too easy. I need effort from you. I need you to match whatever effort the enemy is putting up. Whoever your enemy is, match the doggone effort. I don't care what the circumstance, I don't care what the situation, we put putting on your back, and you like, let's go. When you come up against that thing, you gotta outdo that thing, and you can't do it when you get there. You gotta already make up your mind before you get to cancer. You gotta already make up your mind before you get to that exam and pass that exam. You gotta make up in your mind when you are talking to your husband, when you are talking to your wife, when you are talking to that sickness. You gotta look at it before you even get to it, as long as you got breath in your nostrils. In this game, you gotta have a dog within you. You gotta know it's a dog fight, and you gotta go get that fight. Life ain't gonna be easy. Ain't nobody gonna hand you nothing. Stop running from it and run to it. You just say, I'm here and I ain't going nowhere. No matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how challenging it is, you gotta believe. It. When you can't see it, you gotta believe it. You gotta call it where all the odds are against you. Your destiny is in the fire. If you run from the fire, you will run from your destiny. Your destiny is in the problem. Your destiny is in the storm. Your destiny is in the fight. You're not a victim. You're a victor. And the only thing stands between your success, the only thing stands from you doing what you know you've been called to do. The only thing is you. Nobody can't stop you. You're the only person that can stop you. So stop talking like a victim. Stop thinking like a victim. Stop acting like a victim. And walk into your destiny. Walk into it.
1: News. I'm Brian Clark. The Build Back Better bill passed the House of Representatives in a party-line vote. Majority Leader Steny Hoyer told reporters, as the president said, this is a transformational piece of legislation. It's a $1.75 trillion expansion of social programs. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi highlighted one item.
0: One thing I'm particularly excited about is family medical leave, and uh, that is a fight that we are, uh, have always been engaged in for a long time.
1: The vote was delayed to this morning because of a record-setting eight-hour, 32-minute speech in opposition from minority leader Kevin McCarthy. Let me be clear. Never in American history has so much been spent At one time. The bill now heads to the Senate, where it could face a tougher path in that 50-50 chamber. In a statement, President Biden called the passage another giant step forward. Later today at the White House, he'll take part in the traditional White House turkey pardon ahead of Thanksgiving. Right now, he's at Walter Reed Medical Center, undergoing a physical exam the day before his 79th birthday. The White House says he's temporarily transferring power to Vice President Kamala Harris while he's under anesthesia for a colonoscopy. It's the fourth day of deliberations in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse the A teenager who killed two people and wounded a third during protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin last year, he says he's he acted in self-defense.
0: You
2: come to, I come to lead you.
1: As the jury discusses the case in private, protesters discuss it on the courthouse steps. Despite some minor acts of aggression, Kenosha County Sheriff David Beth says. The people here, most of them are, are being very respectful. You just have a few clowns to the circus. On Thursday, the sheriff made a peace offering to protesters of all stripes, offering them cookies and donuts. Jim Ryan, ABC News, Kenosha, Wisconsin. The FDA's recommended boosters of Pfizer and Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine. The CDC will vote today on a final sign-off. You're listening to ABC News. Less than a week to go before Thanksgiving, and with inflation at a 30-year high, ABC News business correspondent Rebecca Jarvis says. You'll be paying more to chow down.
3: The Farm Bureau estimates that the cost of what's on your table is up 14% from a year ago for a table of 10 from that turkey, which is up 24%. The average 23.99 for a Thanksgiving turkey. The rolls up 15% from a year ago. The cranberries up 11%, and even the pumpkin pie mix is up 7%.
1: And the 48 million people hitting the roads will be paying more at the pump. The national average of gas, $3.41, up more than a dollar from a year ago. One of the largest car shows in the country opens today for the first time since the pandemic began. ABC's Alex Stone has a sneak preview from Los Angeles.
3: It's a quieter pandemic version of the L.A. Auto Show, but there's one thing just about every company is revealing and showing off. Electric vehicles, including Ford's new fully electric F-150 Lightning pickup truck. Auto Trader's Brian Moody says that is the headline grabber. I think it's a big deal culturally. I think it's a big deal automotive-wise, and I think it's a big deal for consumers. Bringing the strong Ford F-150 image to electric without a combustion engine up front when you lift up the hood of the truck, it's a trunk open to put things in. Alex Stone, ABC News at the LA Auto Show. This is ABC News.
2: program is an Anchor production, now available on Spotify and Google Podcasts. Now with that being said, Days Ace Malone Show starts right now. you right world all alone, Good morning everybody, thanks for tuning in, whoever is out there listening, it is Sunday February 2nd, Super Bowl Sunday, so hope everybody uh, has a good game to watch, Um, I don't really have a dog in the fight so I don't really care who (laughs) wins this year, but if I had to choose I think I'm going to go for the Chiefs, Um, simply because I root against the 49ers all year long, no reason to start rooting for them now. I just want to see a good game. So anyway, welcome to another episode of Mind Chatter. Today, I have a interesting and, and, and somewhat controversial topic. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the perception of racism. And this is based on an article that I wrote a few years back. While the uh, there was a, a shooting in Dallas, Texas, um, a black man... Um, over a several hour period shot many, many white cops and that was his intent. Um, he specifically intended to shoot white police because of some, some other shootings by white cops of black men in other areas. Like, uh, this, this was in July, July 7th of 2016, but he was kind of retaliating against some police shootings in other areas, Louisiana, um, Minnesota, I think, was another one, just uh, one or two days before this Dallas thing happened. And I I remember I was watching the, the news coverage as this was unfolding, and uh, I, I was just kind of – I was left with the question, I mean – what what would drive a man to do something like this? And this guy, this guy ended up shooting uh, sixteen people altogether. Um, killed five police officers, wounded nine more, and also shot two uh, kind of innocent bystanders. But even though he was specifically targeting white police, uh, nobody referred to this guy, who was a black man, um, as a racist. Right. Uh, everybody just kind of let it go that he he was just he was uh, some sort of, of justified vigilante for what it, you know, what was seen as, I guess, a retaliation for what white police have been perpetrating on the black community for, you know, the the, the previous days, uh, even years, you know, decades. I mean, this this whole time period um, when this happened was uh there was a lot of police shootings going on. The media was publicizing the crap out of these things. Um, kind of started, I guess, in 2014. Um, at least that's where the media really picked up with the, the Michael Brown incident in Ferguson, Missouri, um, August uh, 2014. You know, they had the Ferguson riots and all this stuff. You know, and there's there's just been so many different incidents, you know, in that couple years span that it was a big deal for a while there. Um so that got me thinking. I mean, this this particular Dallas incident, you know, I, what would drive a man to commit such a hor- horrific act, you know? And I think I think I got it figured out. And it's it's a uh, perception. And uh, it's the perception by um blacks in particular that their communities are being unfairly targeted um by authorities. You know, the perception that law enforcement, and in particular white cops, are racist. And that the criminal justice system routinely convicts and incarcerates blacks at a much higher rate than any other group. morning, Gary. Um, but are those perceptions true? Well, I mean, it's true that the perceptions are there. But more to the point, are the perceptions accurate? Or are they misperceptions? You know, to answer... To answer these kind of questions, we got to explore um, several different elements, and I'm going to pick on a few here, and I, and I think I think you'll see where I'm going with it. Um, so the first thing that comes to mind with this perception of racism in our country, and I'm talking about um, you know the mass mass systemic racism that the media, the politicians, you know, Black Lives Matter groups push. Trying to convince us that America is just a completely racist society, and that's what I'm talking about with this stuff here. You know, so the first thing that comes to mind with this perception of racism thing um, is we have to kind of look at the uh, the difference in culture um, among various groups, right? So, so for argument's sake, if we just limit the comparison to to blacks and whites, I mean, you'll see the point I'm trying to make. You know, but keep in mind I have to speak in generalities, you know. Um, yeah, recognize that there are exceptions, but differences in cultural upbringing will obviously influence different beliefs and behaviors. Good morning, Jackie. Thank you for tuning in. Um, so, for example, the the black community is known for, you know, generally speaking, being very loud and very celebratory. Right? Very much on, uh, you know, an in, in, in exuberant end of the spectrum. And whites, on the other hand, are Generally known for being subdued, more controlled, and laid back, you know, in their expressions, their mannerisms, you know, to see this distinction in action. I mean, compare whites and blacks, you know, at church services, right, or at movie theater, or if you watch them on uh, uh, TV game shows or talk shows or something like that. I mean, you'll you're, you'll see what I mean. Or t- typical conversation, even. I mean, it's almost an, an excited, you know, animated version versus a calm. Calculated comparison, you know, uh, in mannerisms and in speaking. Um, Another interesting cultural difference. um, Yeah, Gary, I I agree, but I'm gonna—I tell you uh, what—I'm gonna be hitting on that here in just a minute, so just hang with me. You'll see what I mean. Um, Another interesting cultural difference is—I mean, although there are exceptions, of course—is that blacks tend to be more likely to congregate into groups you know, or gangs or crowds, while whites, by and large, tend to exhibit more private, individual, you know, independence trade. You know, think about, like, the years of America's westward expansion, you know, in the 1800s. You know, the pioneers and the cowboys heading west to start new lives were almost exclusively white. Not all, but most. While the newly freed black population largely remained in the populated east. You know, and even today... You know, the, the difference persists with the vast majority of, you know, rural landowners being white and the vast majority of black Americans tending to reside in the cities. All right. But all this other things that I was talking about, I mean, there's nothing wrong, <clears throat> excuse me, with the way that either group chooses to talk, to relocate or to or to behave, you know, and, and perhaps it's something of a stereotype. But I mean, that's just the way we are as groups. I mean, that's the perception. But. The way that it becomes an issue is when one isn't prepared for the differences, right? If you were to put this as an example, well, that's what I said in, in general, Gary. Um, so if you were to put like a, a white suburban housewife in the middle of a typical South Central LA backyard barbecue, right, she's going to be very uncomfortable. To say the least. But it'd be the same thing if you were to take a, you know, a black mother of three from the projects of Atlanta and you put her in the middle of an upscale New Hampshire house five tea party. Alright, both women are gonna feel extremely out of place. And they would be. But it's the differences in culture that make it so. Alright, so here's here's the here's the key um, to cultural differences as it pertains to the overall perception. Alright, to the unprepared white, a typical black is going to appear loud, boisterous, aggressive. To the unprepared black, a typical white is going to appear, you know, stuck up or scared or timid, right? The perception that comes out of all this is is what we call racism. You know, but is it really? I mean, no. In most cases, no, it's not. It's probably more accurately called uh, xenophobia, you know, or basically a discomfort or even a fear of something different. Racism itself is, is defined as the belief in the superiority of one race or another. And I don't think that's what's really going on with a lot of these things. You know? So in the the vast majority of cases, you know, blacks and whites don't hate one another. The perception is racism, but the reality is nothing more than a, you know, like a xenophobic discomfort with the cultural difference. And it is these differences that make the other groups... Uneasy or uncomfortable around one another. Right, that's, just, that's just one factor. I'm going to get into a couple of different things here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, a second significant factor, which plays into the overall perception, is closely related to the first, but it's, it's distinct. All right, in the U.S., um, blacks make up approximately 14% of the population. Yet, statistics show that, as a group, they commit almost 70% of all crime. And that's a huge proportional difference. Why is that happening? Good morning, Brad. Thanks for tuning in. So again, the perception is that it's because the justice system is racist, or at the very least, biased against blacks. So as proof, supporters of this perception say, hey, we don't need to look any further than the statistical overrepresentation of blacks in our jails and prisons. You know, are the, are those supporters correct? Well, it turns out not exactly. And here's what I mean. So although Many of the statistics are correct, right? such as um, one in nine black men aged 20 to 34 are behind, are behind bars. And that's according to a 2008 and 2012 Pew Center studies. Right? Or the fact that about 13% of the black population, which is about one and a half million, can't vote due to a felony conviction. You know, Roughly the same percentage can't legally possess firearms either. But the question, the question lingers, you know, is the prevailing perception really due to unfair treatment and racism against the black community? And it's easy to jump to the conclusion that the reason these negative statistics even exist is simply because of the color of the skin. But this is only a partial truth because it's only part of the story. We have to consider in this context um, another cultural difference between um, blacks and whites, and I kind of hit on this a few minutes ago, but you know, where where is it that the vast majority of crimes in America are committed? In the populated inner cities. And by no coincidence, where does the vast majority of black Americans live? In the inner cities. In contrast, white Americans tend to live in, by and large, or gravitate toward the outskirts of the suburbs, you know, all the way out to the rural country and farm areas. You know, again, as generally speaking, there's plenty of white people that live in cities. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I, I certainly don't mean to imply that whites don't commit crime. I mean, of course they do. It's just that the percentage of crime committed by blacks, you know, it might be larger. But the population of whites is even bigger than that. So the 18% or so of crimes that whites are responsible for is actually a much bigger number. Than the total number of crimes committed by blacks, you know, it's bigger than, you know, what first meets the eye. And and the much bigger white population of prisons bears this out. I mean, there's many more white people in prison than there are in black. You know, art numbers, fun. But when you factor in the total population of the individual groups and not just focus on the percentage of crimes committed, what really stands out is the statistical over-representation of blacks both in the commission of crime and the population incarcerated. You know, and this overrepresentation it's not due to racism. It's due to the fact that blacks tend to congregate in the cities where there's simply a higher concentration of people, right? And you couple that with, you know, gang and drug issues that plague just about every city of, of 100,000 people or more, and we get this recipe for a disaster that we have. I think it's because of the population density, um, the crime rates of the inner cities for blacks. This, this becomes a major driver of the perception that that blacks are being unfairly targeted. I mean, the fact of the matter is, by and large, black inner city communities are being targeted, but it's not because of blatant racism or sy- systemic racism. It's because of the majority of the crimes being committed in those inner city neighborhoods, you know, the drug crime, the gang shootings, property crimes, assaults, you know, whatever which in turn attracts law enforcement like moths to a flame. So it may sound counterintuitive to say, but even though blacks are being targeted, it's not racism that puts them in the proverbial crosshairs. It's largely their own criminal behavior. And I think maybe this fact more than any other is what's feeling the perception on both sides. You know, that white cop, whites and cops are racist according to blacks. And blacks are criminals and thugs, according to cops and whites. But this is kind of stereotyping based on misperceptions rather than outright racism. And kind of connected to that is another factor we have to consider, and that's the overall racial disparity inside police forces, right? Because the, the biggest trigger for all of this, this whole time period between 2014, 2016 or so, was it was white cops killing black citizens, right? So that's kind of where this comes into play the racial disparity inside the police forces the racist claims over the years have uh, kind of driven the narrative that police agencies need to, m- to be more diverse in order to better represent their communities and they've responded to that narrative <laughs> excuse me in most uh, police agencies there have been i mean tremendous strides made towards diversification i mean however the racist perception persists you know why would that be so even though there's more black and minority police on the police forces, which is commensurate with the racial populations, there's still a huge disparity. Like I said earlier, blacks, blacks only represent about 14% of the U.S. population. So if a police agency matches that number to satisfy the criticism about racism and diversity and all that, there's still about 86% of the police force that's not black. right? Just like in the rest of society. So when you combine the fact that, on average, a police agency, even a diversified one, is still about 70% white, and the fact that about 70% of crimes are still happening in predominantly black inner-city communities, the chances of having a white cop respond to a crime committed by a black suspect increases dramatically. But again, that's not racism. That's just math. Right? That's just numbers. You know, It's the same principle when you think about it. Hold on, i get a drink of water here. So it's the same principle when we discuss issues like, uh, well, this was popular a couple years back, the uh, the lack of black Oscar nominees and all that, and they were, they were going to boycott the Oscars, you know, or women's wages, you know, you hear this sometimes. I mean, law enforcement in general is just not an industry or a career path that a large amount of black black people gravitate towards. Just like acting, right? The fact is that acting is an industry dominated by whites, in exactly the same way that, you know, say rap and hip hop is an industry dominated by blacks. It's just numbers. It's not racist. You know, when the when the acting industry is, you know, 75, 80 percent white, it shouldn't really surprise anyone that the chance of an Oscar being won by a white actor are much higher than in any given year. I mean, it's not like black actors don't win. They do. I mean, Denzel Washington has won. Jamie Foxx. Morgan Freeman's won an Oscar. Will Smith. Link Whoopi Goldberg. Long time ago, won one. I looked this up. Hattie McDonald 1939 was the first black woman to win an Oscar. 1939. For her role in uh, Gone with the Wind. Sidney Poitier was the first black man in 1964. So it's not like they're not winning. They're just not winning as much as whites because the numbers just aren't there. It's simple as that. You know, and, and just like a, the blacks dominate the, the hip-hop and, and, and rap industry, I mean, it's not really a surprise that most, most of the awards for hip-hop go to blacks. It's, again, it's just numbers. You know, I mean, think about it this way. To any To any casual observer, the NBA or the NFL, highly stacked with blacks. But would anybody make the accusation that racism against whites is at play? I don't know. So again, we have to give numbers credit, not the color of one's skin. Cultural differences help to influence behavior and in turn choices. And the fact is that more whites choose law enforcement, acting, or even golf as a career. And more blacks choose basketball or rap or gang life as a career. The numbers are simply higher in those areas where more choices uh, as a group are being made, you know, in, in that particular direction or that particular career path, right? I mean, to put it real simply, I mean, who do you suppose has a better chance, you know, of winning an $800 million Powerball jackpot, right? The black guy who bought a $5 ticket or the white guy who bought a $1,000 worth of tickets? And it's exactly the same principle, only applied to different areas. The higher the numbers, the higher the chances. And I think that's what we're seeing in a lot of these these situations where racism is to blame, but it's not. It's just the way these different numbers are coming together. Another thing, it's not really... I'm gonna blame kind of the government on this one rather than the people or something like that. And this goes all the way back to the founding of our country. Excuse me. So I'm gonna get a little, uh, I'm get a little constitutional on you here for a second. But another another point to consider is a concept known as uh, multiculturalism. Um, Wait, a founding father, James Madison, who's our fourth president. Um, he's one of the primary authors of the Constitution, and he was—he uh, was very much against the idea of multiculturalism, and he warned very strongly against engaging in that. But what is multiculturalism? Most people tend to think that it's the—you know—the melting pot theory of America, where there are many different cultures, you know, represented under one country. That's not really what it is. Um, that's not where James Madison took any kind of issue. To him, multiculturalism was to, for the government to bestow special favors or privileges upon one group to the exclusion of another. Um, in other words, when the government engages in multiculturalism, it is engaging in unequal treatment of its people. And a government, by the Constitution, is not supposed to do that. So Madison knew that when a government grants special privileges, the result is always a divided people who will eventually tear the country apart. You know, under our Constitution, the government is not supposed to recognize any particular group or subculture, but rather uh, only recognize all citizens as Americans and treat everyone the same under the law. Today, in America, I mean, we're absolutely infested with multicultural privileges. And this is Probably gonna make some people mad when I say this, but among the biggest multicultural pieces of legislation to ever come out is the Civil Rights Act of nineteen sixty right, the Civil Rights Act sparked a movement in America that has had some kind of disastrous consequences simply because this legislation is a serious deviation from constitutional principles. And I don't mean to pick on the the Civil Rights Act specifically because all legislation of this type does the same thing that Madison warned against, right? It singles out specific groups and grants them special treatment, right? The specific group really doesn't matter whether it's blacks, minorities, women, disabled, elderly, gay, religious, it don't matter. What we have in America today is multiculturalism gone crazy, right? The part... What the entire country seems to either not know or are purposely turning a blind eye to is the fact that through multicultural legislations of various sorts, the government is being asked to do something it hasn't the constitutional authority to do. And this type of political philosophy, I've heard it called uh, identity politics, and it's kind of a mainstay of the Democratic Party. The civil rights movement um, under Dr. Martin Luther King, in a nutshell, was a massive petition to the government to force whites to stop treating blacks unfairly, and that 's not a bad thing. You should treat all your all your friends and all your fellow citizens fairly, right? But what no one wants to admit is that this was in and of itself an unreasonable request to make to uh, to the government in the first place. Right, the Constitution was designed to restrain the government not the people from acting unfairly and treating people unequally or violating their rights. All right, in other words it's it's the, the government that is forbidden under the Constitution from discriminating against any citizen not the people. All right, that's a very unpopular point to make today but it's true. I mean if it's only in the event that a citizen harms another citizen or violates his rights that the government is obligated to step in. Otherwise, the government is not supposed to take sides. But the civil rights movement was asking the government to do just that, to take the side of the black community, to create laws which grant special treatment to blacks and minorities and provide punishment for those uh uh you know seen as discriminating against uh, any disadvantaged group. So Excuse me. One of the consequences is that these laws um, create even more friction between sections of our society. Through these multicultural laws, you know the civil, the Civil Rights Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the the affirmative action, hate crime legislation, you know, on and on. I mean, the people are essentially under the force of law to treat. Disadvantage people a certain way. This is very, this is very, it's a very unconstitutional intrusion to the private lives and private businesses of many Americans. I mean, under these these kinds of laws, the Constitution is turned on its head because it is the government treating people unequally, yet trying to force the people to treat each other equally. I mean, it's gotten so ridiculous with these laws that. Like the only group in society left off of the anti-discrimination lists are healthy white people, right? If we just add that section to all of the silly laws, all of the all of America would be included, and then there would be no need for laws at all. Because I mean, it, the irony is that under Article Four, Section Two of the Constitution, every citizen every citizen is already included, right? And blacks, in particular, the Fourteenth Amendment, eighteen sixty eight. They're officially citizens, so they're included already, right? Now, there are so many groups receiving special favor or privilege that it seems whites are the disadvantaged in America today, you know, right? No longer can Americans choose their customer base. No longer can employers hire the best qualified as he or she sees fit. No longer can businesses refuse services to certain customers they don't want to deal with for whatever the reason. And all of this, what it does is it creates tension, in some cases animosity between, you know, whites and minorities. But it's not racism at the core of the hostility, right? It's the special treatment that minorities receive while they scream that they just want to be treated equally. You know, and they scream about so-called white privilege. You know, but if one puts some truly objective thought into it, I mean, is it fair or is it equal, for example, that, a black student or a minority student can receive a full-ride scholarship to a major university, which they may or, may or may not even be qualified for, simply because he or she has brown skin. You know, can a white person make the same claim? You know, is it fair or equal that an employer has to hire a minority regardless of actual skill set or qualifications? Because he has to satisfy racial diversity regulations? You know, is it fair to the white person who might be more experienced or better qualified, who actually gets disqualified because of the color of his skin? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's bizarre, and people don't really understand that that's how these kinds of laws work. You know, I mean, there's a thousand examples, you know, that you could demonstrate, you know. (laughs) I mean, are there instances of anger and hostility towards the black or, or the minority communities in general? Well, yeah, there are. You know, sometimes that hostility leads to unfair criticism or treatment of the black community. But again, that hostility or unfair treatment treatment is not necessarily based on racism. You know, it's actually on it's kind of an example of misdirected anger, the anger at the special treatment, which is made possible by the scores of multicultural legislation. Is being directed at the black community when it should rightfully be directed at the government, which made it possible, you know. And you can't help but ask the question, I mean, does the black community really want to be treated equally? Or do they truly want to be treated better than others? I mean, we, we could be justified in asking if America has become a real life version of George Orwell's animal farm, you know, where everyone is equal, but some are more equal than others. You know, who in this country is being granted more rights? And privileges than others, right? And if we're being truly honest, you know, does that question better fit whites nowadays or minorities? You know, I mean, the black community and the and the civil rights movement, you know, may have pushed for it, but it's ultimately the government which granted the special treatment. to a specific group, which, you know, like I said, they're not supposed to do. You know, the America which James Madison and our founders sought to create was one where all citizens were treated fairly and equally. Multicultural legislation is the tactic which politicians use to divide the American people into sections just to entice a, a vote, right, in exchange for some promise or another. You know, while Republicans have been known to do this, I mean, if you just take note of their rhetoric on small businesses or or, or veterans or the middle class or whatever you know it's really a hallmark of the, the democratic toolbox. you know you listen to the Democratic candidates speak on campaign trails and whatever, um, you know they refer to things like programs for the black community, the Hispanic or Latino vote, the seniors, women's wages, gay rights, you know on and on. Then it should make you wonder why 80% of black America, if they truly want an equal America, are aligned with Democrats. Has anyone stopped to ask, you know, what about American communities? What about American voters? You know, what about a program that will benefit all Americans? So it's, it's a divide and conquer strategy, really. Multiculturalism. That's perhaps the biggest single factor in our country being so divided. And to the perception of failed race relations, you know, for how can we ever be an equal people when certain sections of the citizenry are granted special favors from the government? You know, James Madison knew the answer. We can't. Another, uh, another element um, which is kind of feeling this perception of racism, you know, is is the one that was making the most headlines. Um, in that, in that period I was talking about 2014, 2016, um, the police, you know, I mean, when I, when I wrote this article, um, in 2016, I mean, there was another shooting, uh, in Louisiana, I believe it was Baton Rouge or something where another black man shot six cops. You know, again, and, and it was all over the news. And again, nobody called him a racist because even though specifically he wanted to kill white cops, white people, everybody said it was justified because of the racism that was systemic in the black community or against the black community. You know, again, it was just seen as retaliation for what the police had already been doing. I mean, I'll, I'll say it. I mean, I don't care, even as a white guy. The police in America need a major overhaul. They do. The recent explosion in in camera phones, you know, our smartphone technology, um, the push for police body cams, has given America a very graphic and and kind of in-your-face view of some of the abuses which the black community has been complaining about for years. You know, and it only takes seconds for this footage to hit the internet, and some of this stuff is even live-streamed. But as bad as some of the police actions caught on video are, you know, is it all due to racism? I mean, that's the overriding question here. Could police abuse really be due to hatred or feelings of superiority of the black race simply because they're black? You know, today's police, I mean, unquestionably, have become very aggressive and heavy handed in their approach. And their tactics when dealing with with the everyday citizen, and even still. I mean, I I think there can be little doubt that the vast majority of police do their job professionally and ethically, and, and some some are even you know an, a a pleasure to deal with. They're they're very nice guys, right? There's also um, very little doubt that the tiny percentage of the police causing the problems, that are the ones driving the unfortunate narrative. For the rest. And when stuff starts getting plastered on, on the news channels, it just it looks really bad. So, I mean, how do the police go about repairing the perception that, you know, they've gone from protect and serve to gun down and kill? Right? I mean, there are very different factors at play. Converging into this one It's something of a perfect storm. Police training is the first thing that I would pick on. Training is poor. And it has been for decades, right? If I had to venture a guess, I would say that since the early 1990s, there were two big things that happened that changed the way the police are trained, right? Police used to be more involved with the citizenry. They would go into the stores. They would walk the streets and talk to people and get to know the people that were in the communities. They don't do that anymore, right? First, we had the, the massive political push for tough on crime, Right? And lock them up strategies. Right, So a crap load of laws were created. And more police were put on the government payrolls. Right? And with these diversification laws as well. That created a further problem. In order to fill all of these roles that they needed. I mean they're hiring people that probably shouldn't even have a gun. Or a badge. Some people just don't do good with authority. Right. The second thing that happened around that time was there was something called the, the Pentagon 1033 program. Um, it's also called the Military Surplus Program, which allows the military to start selling or giving excess military-grade weaponry and vehicles and equipment to local police forces, which, of course, quickly ushers in the militarization of our police force. Now – with the new strategies and military equipment came new forms of training, right? The police are now, they're kind of trained as military soldiers, right? Who view the public that they're supposed to protect and serve as, you know, them or the enemy, right? And that's exactly why, contrary to the rhetoric of law enforcement likes to use, every routine traffic stop is now approached as a hostile scene with one hand already on the officer's weapon for a traffic stop but this is this is how citizens merely accused of of selling a bootleg cd or black market cigarettes end up dead at the hands of police all right like eric garner in, in july of 2014 he, he was um selling black market cigarettes and he was gang he gang tackled by like six cops and one of them choked him out and he died <laughs> i mean really for cigarettes They're going to use that kind of of force. Uh, You know, I mean, that's that's kind of the stuff we're talking about. I mean, certainly there are justified police shootings on occasion. It's pretty rare, though. But to get a better understanding, we have got to look deeper than just the times when a citizen, citizen is shot. You know, we have to consider how police interact with people, you know, the way they talk to them in a very aggressive and rude and forceful manner the way they affect an arrest you know you know and the the way that they're they're so paranoid and, and the way that they're trained everything is a hostile situation now i mean we had a uh, an in, an incident in cleveland in 2014 where this little 12 year old kid tamir rice was playing on the playground with a toy gun the officer pulled his gun and killed him 12 year old kid playing on the playground I mean, that's the kind of things that were just outraging the black community. And, of course, it was a white officer who responded. You know, it just... this this, consider how all of that looks to the average citizen watching the news or something. The optics on this are horrible. The way the police respond to situations and and carry weaponry and equipment designed for a battlefield. You know, rolling up 20 deep with armored vehicles and machine guns. Gang tackling some guy for selling cigarettes. Right. I mean, and even though these types of examples may not represent or they may only represent a very small percentage of police around the country. I mean, the terrible perception which results from these encounters, it leaves the country wondering what the hell has happened to our police. You know, the actual rate of a police involved shooting is pretty rare. I mean, something in the neighborhood of like one in, in every 30 million contacts. Or interactions. Right? But the levels of excessive force or abuse of authority, you know, they've increased dramatically in other areas. I mean, so much so that the their police are being viewed as a, a gang of thugs who think they're high above the laws that they're supposed to enforce. You know, and this is a perception which extends beyond the black community. I mean, on one hand, though, I kind of feel sorry for the cops because so many laws are on the books. That law enforcement, I mean, that's their job title, to enforce the laws. But every year, every legislative session, we get so many more laws that the, the average cop or detective out on the street can't possibly know them all. So, I mean, that's a serious disadvantage for them, and I do feel sorry for them in that regard. Um... Ah, excuse me. So one another component, which is again related, um, contributing to the poor perception of police in America, is one which they're kind of doing to themselves, and it strikes at the very heart of their integrity, you know, and their trust and their credibility. It's it's known as the blue code. All right, the blue code is essentially a code of silence, I suppose. You know, like a no snitching rule, if you will, which basically dictates that police are uh, uh, a sacred fraternity or you know, order of brethren or something, who have one another's backs no matter what. No matter how badly a fellow officer may have screwed up, you support him to the end. And this might be the single biggest contributor to the perception that the police are above the law. The Blue Code literally encourages many, many officers to do some illegal, unethical, even abusive things while they're on the job. Alright, We see the same thing. You know, the same type of code within the prison system, you know, with the administration and their staff. I mean, true, there's a there's a few whistleblowers over the years, but by and large, if you violate the blue code, you're a piece of crap. You'll be ostracized. You'll be subject to false allegations, uh, accused of being a traitor to the badge, even driven off the force. I mean, that's how strong it is. The blue code doesn't just encourage law enforcement, you know, to cover up the murder of a citizen. It also encourages silence when officers investigate crimes, or they plant evidence, or or, or tamper with evidence, or crime scenes, or they falsify reports and documents. They lie on the witness stand, you know, use excessive force, and you know, violate the rights of the citizens. They back each other up, and they actually encourage the behavior. So this this blue code, it actually extends up the justice system ladder as well. You know, it affects prosecutors lawyers judges you know the court system relies on it and it deals with these same corrupt you know unethical law enforcement individuals on a daily basis right so you, you couple this close working relationship with the ethical dictate incumbent upon the court system to always maintain the appearance of integrity and fairness you know sprinkle with a dash of qualified immunity from prosecution and you end up with the mess that we have today the court system is practically bound by rule to cover up the wrongdoings of law enforcement players in order to maintain the illusion that the system treats everyone fairly and equally. So can you imagine what would happen to the level of public confidence in our system? I mean, not not to mention the concept of the rule of law. If our law enforcement and court officials were not protected by the Blue Code, our qualified immunity statutes... Can you imagine what would happen to the overall appearance of our law enforcement and justice system if those bad actors were actually prosecuted and held to the same standards as an ordinary citizen? In other words, part of of maintaining the illusion that the system has integrity and is fair is the system's choice to rarely, if ever, prosecute or convict one of their own. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to see the flaw in that philosophy, and that's that's part of the problem as well. Is that when, in one of these police shootings, when a police officer is actually charged with the crime, they almost always get acquitted, and that just infuriates the the communities. I mean, I'm just saying, you put a you put a regular citizen in the same situation, this same, the same type of shooting, he's not going to get acquitted. He's going to be found guilty of murder, and he's done. But for whatever reason, law enforcement gets acquitted. And that, that's a be that's a huge problem. And it does feel the perception you know, of, of racism in America. You know, does racism exist? I mean, of course it does. I mean, it's possible to find pockets of racism all over. But the outright blatant systemic racism, the kind the kind of narrative that the media and politicians love to push, it's not really there to the extent that they would have you believe. I mean, racism itself is a learned behavior. I mean, we're not we're not born being hateful or fearful of another human who looks different than we do. We have to be taught that. You know, what we really have in America is a, is a twisted and tangled mess of laws and practices which fuel the perception of racism. So many times what appears to be racism at first glance is not really it's not really Racism, when you take a deeper objective look at what's truly happening beneath the surface, like all the things with the, you know, the different numbers that I was talking about earlier, you know, the different policies that are put in place. So it's not it's not hatred of one race versus another. It's just all these silly policies, these silly laws, these practices that are creating the illusion. And that's that's really what I was talking about today. I mean, that's kind of where I'm going to leave it. You know, food for thought. Perception of racism. You know, I think that's, that's all it is. It's a perception that's, it's not there or not nearly as close to as prevalent as people would, would, would easily believe. So that's, I mean, that's what I got. I, I hope you guys maybe think about it and, I mean, look some of this stuff up for yourself, you know, don't take my word for it. Um, But with that, I'm going to end my episode here, and I hope everybody uh, has a wonderful Super Bowl Sunday. So I appreciate you all uh, taking your time and and tuning in for me. Terrell, Devin, I I see you guys down there. So everybody have a Super Sunday. I appreciate you tuning in. Thank you.
3: This is CBS News on the Hour, sponsored by Facet Wealth. I'm Steve Kathan. Voting pretty much along party lines, the House of Representatives this morning passed the giant social spending and climate bill that President Biden has been touting for months.
2: Grinning House Democrats led by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi held a victorious press conference after passing the second half of President Biden's ambitious agenda. This occasion would not have been possible without the vision of our great President President Biden. Pelosi says she is excited for what it does for children and families. The bill now goes to the Senate where its fate is uncertain. Centrist Democrats have already raised concerns about the size of the legislation. Allison Keys, CBS News, Washington.
1: I'm Stacey Lynn in Washington. President Biden will temporarily transfer power to Vice President Harris today as he undergoes a routine colonoscopy. The president will be under anesthesia for the procedure. The vice president will work from her office in the West Wing during this time.
3: A few hours ago, the FDA signed off on both the Pfizer and Moderna COVID booster shots for all adults. CBS's David Begnaud. If it has been roughly six months since you got your second shot, you should be good for a booster. as early. There- is this weekend if things get all approved. The CDC will have the final say. A Virginia jury has begun deliberations in the civil trial of white nationalists tied to the deadly right-wing rally in Charlottesville four years ago. It's day four of deliberations for the Wisconsin jury in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. A storm system forming in the northwest heads east next week, and CBS News meteorologist David Parkinson says it could affect travelers looking to get an early start on the Thanksgiving rush. By
1: Sunday, it is into the Midwest, and it's really extending its reach. So Sunday morning, maybe you got some lake effect
3: snow showers around Chicago, up towards Wisconsin. Well, CBS's Jim Crusula has more on a dire pre-winter red flag. Industry regulators are warning that
2: power grids from Texas to the Midwest are at risk of blackouts if a prolonged deep freeze sets in this winter. They say that Texas isn't prepared for another cold snap like the one that crippled its electric grid last winter. Extreme weather driven by climate change is testing power networks like never before.
3: China's foreign ministry insisted today it knows nothing about the controversy surrounding pro tennis player Peng Shuai. She disappeared after accusing a top official of sexual abuse. An email purported to be from her disavowing the accusation is being discredited by people close to her wall street right now the dow is down 215 points but the s&p is up one point this is cbs news
1: hopefully you guys enjoyed that episode and if you have any questions be sure to send them in at b-a-l-l-o-n-e-e-a
2: 88 at gmail.com you can find me on Facebook just search Ace of alone and you can also find me on Instagram at Ace Ballone, underscore between Ace and Valone, all lowercase and until next time I will catch your asses down the road